Well, I've been gone for uh, two weeks, and uh, oh, is that because I was gone? That applause? Yeah. That's what my class does when I cancel class. I get that same response. So I've missed being with you for a bunch of reasons. I love worshiping here. I love uh, hearing the word of God taught. But I mostly miss the fact that I couldn't give you Braille or Linda Wildcat updates. So not only did we make it to quarterfinals and win, we made it to semifinals and played Garden Grove, who was the defending champions, picked to beat us. We beat them in the semifinals. Then we played in the finals Friday night. It was broadcast by Fox Sports West, and we came up a little bit short. Lost to Canyon. Congratulations, Canyon. Great team. Uh, So it was a great season. It was fun. Um, Very proud of my son. He did great. So it was... And then when he, you know, came home, we said, this is why God made ice cream. So let's (laughs) medicate our pain with food. (laughs) That's the Mulehoff way. Um... Motivation. You either have it or you don't. Uh, I, I love living in Southern California, but Christmas, I am not motivated to put up Christmas lights. I'm not motivated by a tree. It's like 70 degrees. I'm from the Midwest. If you can play catch with your son in the driveway and it's Christmas, it's not Christmas. If you're outside in a t-shirt. So I lack motivation. I'm trying to finish a book. I'm at the hard part right now that I've kind of put off and... The deadline's coming, and uh, a bunch of you are going to make New Year's resolutions. January is going to come, right? Uh, I go to the Brea uh, Community Center, and it's always a pain, like the first week of January, because everybody's there. Everybody's there in their brand new sweats and Puma high tops. And the only cool thing is, two weeks later, everything's back to normal, and there's a spike on eBay. You know, there's. What I want to talk about this morning to wrap up our Romans series is what was Paul's motivation to live the life that he lived? He he was martyred for the faith. He wrote most of the New Testament. He was one of the key leaders after Jesus left, him and Paul. What gave him the motivation to do the really hard things that he did in his life? Endure persecution, beatings, uh, and finally death. Now, what's going to be interesting about Paul's motivation is it doesn't motivate us today. When we learn what motivated him, it falls oddly flat on us today, and it isn't super motivating. But let's take a look at what Paul says, and then we'll discuss maybe why we are uncomfortable with his motivation. So in Romans chapter 13, in verses 11 to 13, he says, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us. Then when we believe, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing. Um, Now, what Paul is saying is, I want you to do this. The book of Romans can be broken up into three parts. The first part, Romans chapters 1 to 8, is really rich, deep theology. Some of the best, um, most heartfelt theology Paul can give us, particularly Romans chapter 8. Then Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, he takes that theology and applies it to a really hard question. Well, has God um, abandoned Israel by allowing the Gentiles in? Then in chapter 12, Paul says, now I want you to do all the things I talked about in Romans 1 to 8. So what are the things he's asked us to do? 
Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. After you accept Christ as Savior, you make that pivotal decision. You are now a child of God, but you're not a disciple of God. Those are two separate things. Paul is saying, I urge you. In the Greek, that word urge means I beg you to now become a sacrifice to God, to uh, make Christ your discipler, to do the things Christ did, to say the things Christ did, and that's very different from just accepting him as Savior. The problem is, being a living sacrifice is we always crawl off the altar, right? So we need to constantly make Christ Lord of our lives. We do this because of the great mercies that God has showed us. Then he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. We have to understand that Satan has deeply impacted the beliefs of this world. For example, Ladies, when it comes to body image, right? You are not to base your self-worth nor your sense of beauty on the magazine covers that you walk by when you're in Kroger's or Trader Joe's, right? We see women that are abnormally thin and women that don't even look like that in real life. There was a bill that was going through Congress two years ago that if you showed any photoshopped photo on a cover of any magazine, there'd be an asterisk and at the bottom it would say this photograph has been photoshopped. It was defeated in Congress. But again, these women don't even look like that. And it's not even women anymore. I go to Kroger or Albertsons and there's Men's Health Journal. And there's a guy with his shirt off. He has no hair on his chest and his abdominal muscles spell mom. It's like, wow. Well, guess what? We're not supposed to take all of our time and energy and attention looking like that. Uh, We are not the sum total of our bank account. We're not the sum total of our grade point, right? That is the world system of judging your value. It's not whether you're accomplishing the American dream isn't part of your self-worth. Paul is saying, I want you to be renewed in your mind and embrace what God would say are the values of a person. Uh, Trustworthy, uh, tender-hearted, caring for the poor, you know, things like that. Then Paul goes on and says... Uh, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Remember I said a couple sermons ago, people are watching this church. They're watching to see if we're authentic. Jesus put all of his eggs in one basket. He said, you want to know if Christianity is true? If you want to know if these Christ followers are authentic, it's how much they love each other and how much they'll forgive each other. So men and women, we do the hard work of forgiving each other. Paul would say in Colossians, just as Christ has forgiven you, I want you to forgive each other. That's hard to do. It's hard to pull off. But that's what we have to do. Then Paul goes on and says this. Boy, this is a timely word for today. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Men and women, we have people who oppose us. We have people who oppose our religious views, our social views, right? But how they treat us in the media is not how we're to treat them. We are not to speak ill towards them. We are to bless them, Paul says. That's why Sigmund Freud rejected Christianity. He read the Sermon on the Mount. He thought it was ridiculous that you would turn the other cheek towards another person. But that is what we're supposed to do. So I was being interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago on a radio program about politics today, the current source of politics, and I'm a communications professor. And I simply said this. This was a Christian radio station. This got so much reaction, it was really interesting. Kind of took the producer by surprise. I simply said this. So as a Christian, I vote based on two issues, not one. One, of course, I vote on a person's um, content, right? What he or she believes, of course. But I also vote, based on the New Testament, how that person communicates. 
Right? I mean, and the Bible holds you to both standards. Speak the truth in love. Uh, life and death is in the power of the tongue, says the book of Proverbs. So I say, if you want to be my leader, religiously or politically, how you speak in public, you absolutely lose my vote. If you do not speak kindly, if you do not promote civility, you do not get my vote. And I said, I think as Christians, if people want our vote, you better treat people with respect. And if there's people who don't do that in public, then I say, you don't get my vote. And then this person said to me, okay, let's say it's so-and-so candidate and so-and-so candidate. I said, well, I don't think I agree with either of those people. So I exercised my democratic right not to vote. That lit up the, the boom. And it was great because the interview was over. It was perfect timing. <clears> Owe <throat> oh, nothing to anyone, Paul says in Romans 13, except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the entire law, if you love our neighbor. Are we good neighbors to people in San Bernardino? Are we good neighbors to people in Brea, Fullerton, La Habra? Right? Are we good neighbors? Paul wants us to be good neighbors. Now that's a lot to do. Love each other. Be living sacrifices. Do not persecute people who persecute you, right? Uh, be righteous. Well, we got a lot going on today. We're, we're spouses. We're parents. We're good roommates. We're um, people just starting a business, right? Or just starting an education. Now, add all of this. You better have good motivation to do everything Paul says when he says, do this. Now we get to Paul's motivation, and we'll see how it resonates with us. Paul says this. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Now, Paul is speaking in code here. One thing he says is your salvation is nearer than what it was before. He's speaking about the totality of salvation. You're being sanctified by being in God's presence in heaven. So he says, every day you live, you're getting nearer to your ultimate salvation being united with God in Christ and boy if there's any lesson in the tragedy of San Bernardino you do you are not promised tomorrow God does not promise anybody tomorrow Jesus himself would say today is the day of salvation so we tend to take our lives for granted here in the United States I think our sense of security is being shattered right we understand now what it's like for the people of Paris right and the people in London there was a terrorist attack just yesterday with a man wielding a knife on a London uh, train platform right it's affected us that's not a bad thing it's not a bad thing to know as the whole new old testament says your life is like a vapor it is like a runner that comes and goes there's something about that that's biblical to know i'm not guaranteed tomorrow i'm not guaranteed the future and i need to embrace that and live accordingly to that so then Paul says, the night is almost gone, the day is near. This is code for the second coming of Christ. The darkness is the evil that Paul sees. The day always represents the coming of Christ and the second return of Jesus, right? Now, why would Paul say that the times were dark, that this was night? He was noticing what would eventually become Nero's persecution of the church. You know that Nero was psychotic. And when Rome started to lose some of its prestige, in a way to account for that, he blamed it on Christians and brutally slaughtered Christians. Uh, fed them to lions, burned them alive at the stake. Paul eventually would become part of that, and he himself would be persecuted and martyred. So he sees the darkness and he says, but understand Romans, Christians, the day is coming and it's almost here. 
But it wasn't. Jesus didn't come back. Uh, there's debate whether he believed, Paul believed it would happen in his lifetime, but there's no debate that he believed it was imminent, that it was going to happen very quickly. Well, it didn't happen. Uh, he's not the only one to think it would happen, by the way. Uh, Francis Schaeffer is a great apologist. How many of you have read a book by Francis Schaeffer? Okay, good. I'm really encouraged. There's C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, Francis Schaeffer, or just these classic apologists who defended the Christian faith. I want you to hear a letter Francis Schaeffer wrote to one of his friends. This is what Schaeffer said. Surely, if there was ever a dark age in history, and one which needs a calling forth unto a deeper spiritual walk, and close waiting upon our dear God, this is our generation. The longer I am back in the United States, the more I tremble for my beloved land. I wonder if we are not coming close to the end of civilization. Now, when I read that to my students, I have them answer this question. When do you think Francis Schaeffer wrote that letter? Uh, Put a date on it. My students always say things like, oh, 1980s, 1990s. No, you know the answer to that question is? Unbelievable. This is when he wrote it. 1954. Now, notice what he prefigures in 1954, right? The sexual revolution of the 1960s, the AIDS crisis, Roe v. Wade, the bloody struggle of the civil rights movement. I just rewatched Selma a couple nights ago. Unbelievable what happened in our country just in the 1960s. Uh, the divorce culture, which happened in the 1960s. Um, the Rwandan genocide, the explosion of sex trafficking today. Do you know there are more slaves today than any point of human history? according to the International Justice Mission. Uh, The proliferation of pornography. Welcome to California. This is the gateway of pornography to the entire country and the entire world. California, a billion-dollar industry. Uh, ISIS and global terrorism. And now San Bernardino shooting, which they now link to terrorism. They're calling it domestic terrorism. This is all before any of that. Imagine Francis Schaeffer writing his letter today. What would it sound like? And yet Christ didn't come back when Francis Schaeffer thought it was the end of civilization. Thus, our motivation just kind of wanes a little bit. If you had to bet the house, just be honest with me, you had to bet the house, do you think Christ is coming back in your lifetime? Oh, okay, we got one yes, okay? But I think the rest of us would have to say, hmm, 2,000 years of not coming, and if you're not coming at the end of World War II, Right, the end of of Hitler's final solution where he slaughtered 6 million Jews, Uh, Stalin's psychotic purge of people, upwards 20 million people. Do you know Europe is still shaken to this day? That's why we're sending missionaries uh, this summer to Europe because Europe is still shaken. Uh, How can you believe in God when God allows World War II? H.G. Wells firmly believed that we were getting better as people and then World War II happens and he even caved in and said, I no longer have hope for humanity after World War II. So are we really thinking he's going to come during our short lifetime? Paul absolutely believed it was going to happen, and it didn't. Now, how do you you answer that? What's what's our answer for that? I don't know. Let's ask the new pastor when he gets here. No, I don't know. (laughs) But, but, I 
am going to try to answer this question. Okay, so we have clues. Now, you got to put your thinking hat on, okay? Those of you who like the movie Inception, you're going to love this answer, okay? So let's put our thinking caps on. Christ has not returned, though Paul fully expected him to come very quickly because the darkness. Uh, Francis Schaeffer sees the darkness of the 1950s and is convinced, right? This is the end. But it's not the end, so what's going on? All right, here are some clues. First, from one theologian, said this. I thought this was a brilliant quote. The church causing those conditions without which it cannot happen. The cannot happen is the second coming of Christ. That day being no day inexorably fixed. What does that word mean? It means, in the dictionary, if I were inexorably fixed, it means your petitions would do nothing for me. I've said it, I'm rigid, and I won't change my mind. It doesn't matter what you do. That's what that word means. He's saying the day of Christ is not like that. But one, the arrival of which it is free to the church to hasten by faith and by prayer the second coming of Christ. We have a huge part in when Christ is going to return. Okay, so listen to what Peter says. Peter says this, because you better believe the church has been critiqued about this forever. Uh, The early church was like, you keep saying Jesus is coming back. He hasn't come back. You guys are a joke. And so the early church had to answer it. We have to answer it because we keep saying, oh, the times are dark, right? And God is coming back and he doesn't come back. Well, what's our answer to this? I think we're um, using the wrong kind of language to describe it. And Peter tries to shore that up. This is what Peter says. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, yeah, God um, isn't going back on his promise. He's not changing. I think we misunderstood what his criteria is. So Peter goes into it. But is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Men and women, God's desire is that everybody comes to faith. There's not one person who would be damned. Now, I know I'm stepping on theological toes. I know I'm going against one tradition as I promote another tradition. I get that. But I think what is clear is what Ezekiel says. God says, I don't take delight in the death of anyone, even the death of the wicked. This is Jesus standing in front of Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you in my arms. You would not. I think God wants the salvation of every single person, and he is willing to endure uh, World War II, Hitler and Stalin. He's willing to endure Nero's persecution. He's willing to endure what happened in San Bernardino. Why? To get the word out so that his church can share with people because he wants everybody to come to repentance. Then he goes on and says this, Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed in the intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Again, I'm simply advocating that we need to live in light of his second coming. I'm not saying exactly what the second coming will look like. That'd be a whole sermon series that we just don't have time for. So how does this relate to the rapture, the tribulation, all of the antichrist? That's a whole nother topic. I'm simply wanting to reclaim the idea that we need to live expectantly that he is coming. Later we can figure out exactly what that looks like. But then Peter says this, that I find the most interesting thing of this passage. Peter says this, since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in light of the fact that Christ is coming like a thief in the night? And then he says, and in looking for and hastening the coming of Christ. So we can actually speed up the coming of Christ. Now let's think about this in two directions. One, 
our human understanding of it and God's understanding of it. Human understanding of it. God, there are certain things we can do that can bring Christ's return quicker. What would those things be? I think two are mentioned in scriptures. One, uh, we can pray and do the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray, and this is how he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our goal as the church is to make sure that God's name is respected, hallowed all across the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that interesting? There's no reason to pray that God's will be done on earth if it's always being done. There's no reason to pray that. No, we pray, Father, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, because right now it's not being fully done on earth. So hear me when I say this. The shootings in San Bernardino were not the will of God. God did not motivate two people to slaughter 14 other people. God's will is precisely the opposite. He wants shalom in the world. He wants peace in the world. He wants his kingdom to come in the world. In the future kingdom, there are going to be no terrorist acts. There's no going to be no acts of violence. God precisely wants us to recreate the kingdom on planet earth. And he's waiting for us to do that. And when we do that, when we accomplish his purposes, Christ is absolutely going to come back. So we pray the second coming of Christ. And then we live to make those conditions such that God's kingdom would absolutely flourish in this world. So will there be any homeless in God's future kingdom? The answer is no. So we help the homeless here. Um, are there people who in need of uh, relational counseling? Absolutely. So we do that while we're here. Do people need the gospel? Absolutely. So we do that here. Then Jesus himself, by the way, Jesus didn't claim to know the time that God, that he was going to come back. He never claimed to have that kind of information, but he does say this. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So here's why there's great reason to be really excited. I'm part of Campus Crusade for Christ crew, and our leader, Steve Douglas, always gives us updates that it, there's an unprecedented level of cooperation uh, among churches today and religious organizations that used to have nothing to do with each other are coming together for the express reason to proclaim the gospel. He said the gospel is on the move today in ways that it has never been before and we're seeing results globally that have only been imagined in the past. Through social media, through films, uh, through missionary teams, global cooperation. Second is really interesting. Rabbi Zacharias, who's a theolo- uh, uh, an apologist today, he, he said that, this is kind of controversial, but I think it's really interesting. He said, so take the Muslim community, for instance, right? One out of the five people in the world identify as a Muslim today. He said, if you read the Quran, great uh, import is given to dreams, the power of dreams in the Quran. He has come across many, many, many people from the Muslim community that they've had a dream and have met Christ in their dream. Jesus of the Bible, Jesus has proclaimed the gospel and they have responded. Now, this is coming from Ravi Zacharias. If you hate it and think it's heretical, it's RaviZacharias.com, okay? Um, I think that's fascinating that God isn't limited to the American church. There's a church in China. There's a church in Africa. He's not even limited to expressly people communicating and preaching the gospel. He can do it through dreams. So he's augmenting. Remember a couple sermons ago, I said God is bombarding this world for the reception of the gospel. Uh, A billboard, a, a, a world of billboards that proclaim him. Well, we are stepping into this and the proclamation of the gospel is going forth. And the evil is rising, but so is the proclamation of the gospel. And who 
knows? Christ may very well come back at virtually any moment knowing what we know about what the church is doing today. Now, okay, so I don't get kicked out of the church. God's perspective. Does God know the day? Absolutely he knows the day. Future does not take God by surprise. Why? Did he... Did he micromanage the entire future and that's why he knows it? No, I don't think that's true. But he does know the future. So the date has been picked. It wasn't um, picked without any uh, consideration of what the church would do. He absolutely knows how the church is going to respond and not respond. So that date, he knows because of what the church is doing in combination with what he's doing and when his purposes will fulfill, absolutely Christ is coming back. But don't think it was picked without any consideration of what the church would do. No, God knows in working with us when that date is going to be, but we had a huge part in in helping when that date would be. Now, Paul says this, if this is true, right, the second coming is here, um, the day is coming, then I want you to awake from your sleep, church. It's time for you to wake up. It's time for the church to be the church in the midst of this great darkness. So I found this very interesting. This is the cover of a newspaper the day after the San Bernardino shootings. said this, God isn't fixing this. 14 dead in California mass shooting. As latest batch of innocent Americans are left lying in pools of blood, cowards who could truly end gun scourge continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes, referring to two things. One, don't give me a prayer or vigil after the fact. Right? Don't pray for us after the fact. Where was your God before the fact? I don't have a prayer vigil for 14 people who were slaughtered. Where was God the day before the shootings? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. That has been the biggest challenge to Christianity since the beginning of Christianity. People have always said, you say God is good, loving, and powerful, and present. Why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he stop those shootings? Why didn't he stop the terrorist attacks of 9-11? Why didn't he stop the terrorist attacks in Paris? Why does your God always show up after the fact and say that it's going to be peace to us? That makes no sense. We better have an answer for that. And and that has been an apologetic issue that we have wrestled with for years and years and years. Second, they're saying, don't just pray for us, do something. And I think that's absolutely biblical. What John says in 1 John is this, don't say that you love people, but then you don't help them. There's no way the love of God is in you, John says. Don't just say, hey, God's peace to a person who's hungry or beaten, and you don't help that person. John says, I don't think the love of God is in you. So we can't just be a praying church. Absolutely, we need to pray more than what we do. But we need to actually reach out to San Bernardino, which is an hour and three minutes away. We need to be responders. We need to always be there to help people. And guess what? We indiscriminately help everybody. That's what makes Christianity scandalous. That's what Freud hated. So let me just say this. The one thing that bugs me about that newspaper front article, it's absolutely false. 14 people didn't die that day. 16 did. Two terrorists died that day and left behind a child. God, and this is scandalous, God loves the 14 who were slaughtered. He loves the two terrorists who were killed. And he loves the baby that was left behind. He loves them all. Now, do I believe in justice? Absolutely, I think we need to respond to ISIS. And if one of those two terrorists would have lived, they need to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Romans 13 says God instituted governments to curb evil. But we love the very people who would do us harm. That is what makes Christianity authentic. Jesus went to a world that would eventually kill him. 
So Paul says, in light of this, in light of the fact that the day is almost here, I want you to put off certain things and I want you to put on certain things. Here's what he wants you to put off. Interesting list of six things. Um, Why these six? Is is it an exhaustive list? I don't think so. But here are the six that he picks. First, carousing and drunkenness. Carousing in his mindset would be um, people getting drunk, going through town, uh, chanting for Roman, uh, Roman deities like Bacchus, right? Local deities. He says, don't do that. Don't get drunk. Don't go carousing. Um, sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Interesting that he would pick this. I think Paul is very forward thinking. The sexual revolution of the 1960s, we're still dealing with it today. Right? Well, questions about sexual identity. Questions about gender. Questions about marriage. We're still dealing with that today. Paul says this. Listen, sexual promiscuity, the tension's always going to be there. Why? Because Paul, uh, Paul would say, you're sexual beings. I get that. I get that sexuality is a huge part of who you are, but it ought not to control you. So God, based on his wisdom, care, and love, has put limits on our sexuality. He has said, I want you to reserve sex for marriage. You should hear me. You should see me say this on on American college campuses, secular campuses. They look at me like I'm a Puritan right off the boat. They're like, are you What? Yeah, reserve sex for marriage. You're going to be crazy at our age. But yeah, I get it. I get that it's hard. I get that you don't want God to dictate terms. I get that you don't want God to say that I understand sex better than you do. But God is saying, I want you to flourish in all aspects of who you are. Your sexuality is a huge part of you. Will you trust me that I know how best it works? And I think that's hugely important today. The sexual revolution of the 60s was the biggest revolution ever hit our country. And today we're saying the question, do we have a right to define gender? Do we have a right to define sexuality? Do we have a right to define marriage? And God is saying, no, listen to how I define these things. Welcome to today's culture war. So why does Paul pick these six? Because I think he's asking an even bigger question that he was asking in Romans chapter 12. Am I Lord of your life? And this is what um, I think it is. Which will you choose, desires of the flesh, or will you choose me? Now, we often forget about God, and I love what Bonhoeffer says, Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness. So men and women, he's saying to the church today, church, it's time for you to wake up in light of the fact that I'm coming, um, and I want you to behave in a certain way in the light of that. So Paul goes on, and he says this, uh, does the church need to have lament or repentance? I think we're very good at doing lament without repentance. So here's what lament is. I'm driving the wrong way on a one-way in a Brea or Fullerton motorcycle police officer pulls me over and says, Mr. Mielhoff, you're going the wrong way on a one-way. And I go, I'm so sorry. Life has been so stressful and this is just, oh. That's lament. He gives me the ticket. I keep going the wrong way down a one-way. Repentance is turning and coming the right way. So I think the church today, we need to repent. What do we need to repent of? I think we need to repent of flirting with sin. I think we need to uh, uh, repent of not living as though Christ were coming back. Uh, I think we need to repent of the American dream a little bit. God never promised you the American dream. He never promised his children happiness. I think we need to step back and say, God, I need to reorient my life according to the fact that you're coming back and what should be my priorities. 
Now, I get that that's a bummer. It's certainly a bummer for the engaged people in the audience. It's like, you know, I, I don't want Christ to come back. Many of us are like, it'd be really inconvenient if Christ come back right now, right? I, I want to finish my degree. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to see my kids grown. I want to do that, right? So it'd be a huge inconvenience to us. I think we need to repent of that. I think we need to say, God, your kingdom is more important than my personal happiness. Now, some of you might counter and say this. Some of you might say, well, wait, wait a minute. You said, when you preached on lavish grace, you said that God loves me as much as he ever will love me right now. I absolutely believe that's true. But So then why do I need to repent? What does it matter whether I do anything Paul's saying in the book of Romans? It's a great objection that Paul himself would deal with. So let me say this. Um, here's my answer to why you should live a holy life. Does God love you as much as he ever will love you right now? Absolutely. Is there anything you can do to make God love you more? No, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. Right? He loves you because of what Christ did. But that doesn't mean you're experiencing his love the way that you could. So if we took a trip to Big Bear, let's say, and we're driving up to Big Bear, Big Bear is always as beautiful as it can be, but our ability to see it could be compromised by junk on our windshield. Remove the junk, you get to see Big Bear for all of its beauty. Same thing with God's love. Don't think for a second because God loves all of us equally means that all of us experience God's love equally. No, some of us experience God's love much better or much poorer than other people. Why? There's junk on our windshield. We can't see the love of God. We can't hear the love of God. So what we do is we remove these sins. Guess what? You get to experience the love of God. His love is pouring out to you 100%, but your ability to receive it is based on you getting rid of certain things. And some of those things are those gray areas, the book of Hebrews, would say are hindrances. So let me give you one that we've had to wrestle with. My middle son uh, is a Biola student. He moved into an apartment where they have this unbelievable flat screen TV that can do everything. It can launch missiles. I mean, this is unbelievable TV. You, you can be on the internet with it, Netflix, all this kind of stuff. So he knew that. So two years ago, we got him a TV that was a smart TV. So he left that one and it was all hooked up and he went off and said, hey, mom, dad, you can have my smart TV. We're like, well, thank you. We bought it for you. So that's really big of you. Thank you. So... Guys, it was unbelievable. Oh my gosh. Uh, we're watching everything. It's just right there. We're binge watching The West Wing, um, Big Bang Theory, but, uh, right? And then our queue is unbelievable. Our queue has everything you can imagine. A documentary on Yiddish sheep herders, like everything. I became convicted. I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, Tim, wow. Like, you got a book to finish. How's your prayer life? How are your times of solitude? It's like, well, it's hard to work that in because that, the number comes up. It's like 30 seconds, and it decreases so quickly, and then the music comes on, and you gotta, you got to know if Jack's going to save the United States. I pray for Jack. So I felt increasingly convicted. So I did the craziest thing. My kids think that I was crazy. We boxed it up and put it upstairs. My kids came home for Thanksgiving. Hey, where's the smart TV? It's upstairs in a box. Why? I said, because I don't think it's good for me. I think I, it's hard for me to have solitude when I know it's downstairs. 
So I, I think some of us need to make changes like that. We need to wake up. and uh, So I don't think God is what you just do on a Sunday. Maybe it's time to get involved in Rooted. Maybe it's time to find an adult fellowship group that Noreen and I belong to. You know, this church is so big, you can just come and go and nobody notices. My wife and I went to a mega church in North Carolina. That was 11 years ago. I think there's people who still think we attend that church. It's like, I haven't seen the Mealhoffs in years. Well, I'm sure they're here, right? No, belong to a small group of people, an adult fellowship group that if you don't, if you stop showing up, somebody's going to find out. Someone's going to say, hey, where are you guys? We're concerned about you. We miss you. Now Paul says this, put this on. Interesting how he phrases it. Let us behave properly as in the day. Remember, day is code for the second coming of Christ. So he's saying, I want you to live as though God has already returned. I want you to live as though Christ is here presently. You know, if, if Barry Corey, the president of Biola, were to call me and say, hey, Tim, Tuesday, I'd like to follow you around on campus. I'd like to go to your classes, be part of your office hours. Would that be okay? Yeah, it'd be okay. Do you think it would affect anything I did those days? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Any question would be a great question in class. Oh, what a brilliant question you just asked. That's wow. You know, after I pray for discernment, I'd like to address that question. You know, I mean, in front of Barry, it'd be like, wow. Now, by the way, it's not that I think that Barry's mad at me. It's not that I think he'd fire me. I, I think Barry, I respect Barry Corey. I think he respects me. I'd be pleased that he would be there. I'd, I'd be pleased to, in a way, show off in front of Barry Corey. C.S. Lewis mentioned this in, in, a, in an essay you have to read called The Weight of Glory. He said, we get kind of freaked out thinking that God's actually going to reward us at the judgment seat of Christ. But God, based on scripture, is actually going to reward you. He's going to say, hey, well done. And he's going to give you crowns to fit in. I mean, Lewis said, don't be embarrassed by that. That's what every good son wants a father to do. That's what every good animal wants to experience the blessings of the master, right? He said, it's very much part of our DNA. So we need to live as though Christ were among us. Would that change what you watched on television? Would that change the music you listen to? Would it change how we talk to each other? Knowing that Christ was right there. And Paul's saying, I want you to behave though he's here. Though the day has already arrived. And then he says this. I want you to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interesting that he would say that. Because in Galatians 3.27, he says this. For all of you who are baptized into Christ... You have already clothed yourself in Christ. Yet he said in Romans, I want you to clothe yourself. So wait a minute, what's he saying? Here's what I think Paul's saying. You already have been clothed with Christ, but we forget it. So every morning we need to remind ourselves and put on Christ. Right? We all get dressed, right, in the morning. And it would be weird if I showed up at Biola and one of my students raised her hand and said, Dr. Miloff, this is kind of embarrassing, but you were naked. I'd be like, well, you know, I was busy. I had to make some choices. No, no. We, we always get dressed. Paul is saying in the morning, you should get dressed biblically. You should clothe yourself, remind yourself of the blessings of Christ. This is how C.S. Lewis um, phrases it. That is why the real problem for the Christian comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. Don't you love that? All the fears of the day, your worries, all the responsibilities. So he says, the job of a Christian each morning consists of simply shoving them all back 
and listening to the other voice, God's voice. So I think clothing yourself in Christ means this. Before I turn on the internet, before I go to Facebook, before I respond to my um, uh, tweets or whatever, I have a moment with God where I bathe myself in biblical truth. So let me show you a clip from a movie called The Help. Uh, This is the story, a very interesting movie, uh, a story about uh, an African-American housekeeper who's with a white family where the woman is very concerned about the mother, about her appearance, yet she has a daughter that she's disappointed in because she thinks the daughter is kind of chubby and actually says that in front of the daughter and the housemaid is just distraught that the mother would say these things to her child. So she counteracts it with this interesting little ritual. Let's watch this. So I think, I think we need to do that. Every morning we stand and we take the truth of scripture and we get dressed with, and clothe ourselves with Christ. We remind ourselves of what is true with us. So everybody stand. Everybody stand. I, I have my list that I want us to work through. So I want you to stand with your arms raised. And you're going to repeat after me and let's get clothed in Christ as we walk out into the world. So, say after me, I am deeply forgiven of all sin. I am deeply loved as a child of God. Each day I put on Christ. And thus experience God's lavished grace in fresh ways. I expectantly pray thy kingdom come. But live each day as if Christ has already come. This day I seek to speed the coming of Christ. By loving myself and others. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you. We're deeply humbled. We're reminded that your birth was in the midst of great tragedy, of a psychotic king who murdered toddlers in order to prevent your coming. Father, we are not ignorant of what's happening in the world. The tragedy in Paris, the tragedy in Boston, the tragedy of London, the tragedy of San Bernardino. Father, these are dark times. But we know the day is coming. Let us be your feet. Let us be your love. Let us proclaim the gospel. Let us pray for the world as it receives and hears the gospel. Father, I pray that we would expectantly look for your return. Soften our hearts. We often don't think about it. We often don't long for it. Father, thank you for your patience. Thank you that you're willing to endure one more day what is happening in a broken world so that we can be the church. Thank you for that gracious patience. Let our heart break for the hearts that break yours. We pray in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Amen.